0: Hey, um, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, if you would. Um, where, that's where we're going to be this evening. How many of you, your favorite book in the Bible is Ephesians? Just raise your hand. Okay. By the end of this series, I'm hoping that everybody's hand is raised, Okay. Um, We are starting a new series this evening, and we're calling it The Church Jesus Longs For. The Church Jesus Longs For. Um, We're going to be going through uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and kind of the goal of this series is to look at the Apostle Paul's uh, instruction, uh, exhortation, um, prophetic insight into the church. As we are founding our church, we want to get an apostle's vision into our church. Now, when you talk about the church, though, like, just have you, like, how do you even hear that word? You're like, the church. Is it, does it sound positive? Is it a negative? Um, the church in our culture uh, is kind of a prickly issue. It, it, the church has been full of scandals. We hear about them uh, on the radio. We watch them on TV. We hear about them online. Uh, it, it Maybe even there's been scandals in your own church that you've been a part of in the past. Uh, The church has been a part of injustice down throughout uh, centuries. It kind of has this checkered history uh, with the state. But even with all of the, uh, if I were to ask you, like, what objections do you guys have against the church? Even with all of those objections that might come up in your mind right now, Jesus still believes in his church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So for those of you who are concerned about popular opinion in the church, popular, popular opinions a little bit weaker than the gates of hell. Jesus believed that the church was valuable enough to entrust the church with the redemption of his world. Here's just a few metaphors that Jesus used about the church. He said that we're to be fishers of men. And you know, the fascinating part of, of when he says that, we, that his disciples would be fishers of men is that they had just caught an overwhelming number of fish, so much so that it began to sink their boat. And then Jesus says to him, Oh, and now I'm going to make you fishers of men. What is he saying? He's implicitly saying that in the same way that you just fished and you caught all of those fish, I intend for you to fish for men, and it's not going to just be a slight trickle. There's going to be so many people coming into the kingdom that it will sink the boat. That's a good word. Uh, (laughs) He said, you're going to be a city on a hill. The church is going to be a city on a hill. What does that mean? You're going to be a beacon of light for what it looks like to have the kingdom rest amongst you. He said that you're going to be like farmers. The church is like farmers. They, they go and they plant their seed, and it says in the, in, in the uh, scriptures, in one of the Gospels, that whether the farmer sleeps or rises, God's the one who causes the seeds to grow. How comforting is that? The pressure's off your shoulders. Uh, He gives us this other metaphor, maybe the most predominant metaphor of the church is the body of Christ. He's like, I could stay here, but I'm just one man. If I go away, it's better, I'll send my spirit so that all of you can be little me's around the world. Incredible. He says that we're being built up into a house. This isn't just a building, this isn't just a group of people that have got together to sing some songs and read the Bible. This is a house being built so that the presence of God can dwell in it. And then lastly, he says that we are the bride of Christ. How many of you guys like that one? I love that one. The bride of Christ. What does that mean? You're cherished. You're delighted in. When God thinks about his church, he doesn't think about all the scandals and all the pain. And he goes, oh no, but I still cherish them. I still delight in them. One of the words, we have a list of just uh, what we believe to be prophetic words about this church that we've compiled uh, over the past year. And, And one of the words, I think it was Andoni who had this word, it was this, that God was going to make Newberg the engagement ring on the finger of his bride. Isn't that good? That's just a good word. Holy cow. What does that mean? Yeah, I spent today thinking about it. I was like, what, what does that even mean? Here's what it means. What is an engagement ring? It's a promise. It's, a, it, it's almost like a little bit of a down payment. It says there is a wedding that's coming, and don't forget it. It says you're cherished, and you're worth this much. Don't forget it. What is Newburgh going to be to the church as a whole? Little town of Newburgh, it's, it's gonna be an engagement ring where people look to it and they remember that the promises of God will come to fruition one day and that his faithfulness is the predominant characteristic that he expresses towards his people. That's what's gonna happen. We need to be reminded of the beauty of his faithfulness and blessing and the promise of heaven on earth. And he intends to do that for humanity through his church becoming the church. And just like we personally, we can't allow the views and thoughts of those around us to shape our view of ourselves, we can't allow the views and thoughts around us to shape our view of the church, more so than his promises and his thoughts about the church. So the goal of this series is to look freshly at the character of Jesus' bride. You know, if if there was one person who um, proved that anybody could be saved and be used by God, it's the Apostle Paul. Um, it, it, he, was, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees, he was a persecutor of the way, he was a hater of Christians. Uh, it, it tells us in the book of Acts that he was historically recorded of approving of Stephen's stoning. So, many of you guys know the story of Stephen in the New Testament being stoned. It says that there's a man, Saul, his name gets changed to Paul when he comes into Christ, but there's a man named Saul there, and he's saying, he's approving over what is taking place. So, just this incredibly wicked person. And yet, an encounter with Jesus leads him to give his life over to Jesus. He ends up writing 13 books in the New Testament. He shapes our entire understanding of what being a Christian means. His letters were circulated between the churches throughout the Mediterranean, and 2,000 years later, Western civilization. No, No other writings have shaped Western civilization like his. So, My question is if we could sum up the messages of Paul throughout those letters to the churches and we could almost like put them on the walls and walk through a hall of the highlights of what Paul has said to the church and about the church, what if we could have a series throughout these different letters where we looked at each of the stunning statements he made about the church? That's what we're aiming to do. So um, tonight, I want to start by reading Ephesians chapter 1. Verse three, the first highlight in Paul's words to the church. It says this in verse three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us For adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us and the one he loves, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the time reaches their, full, their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glory. Uh, this is the Musée d'Orsay. And uh, just an incredible museum in Paris. And over the summer, my wife and I had the opportunity to go to Paris on our sabbatical. And we didn't want to mess with the crowds at the Louvre. It's like 20,000 people just crowding in there, trying to see works of art. And as you can tell, there's not 20,000 people there. Maybe a few hundred. So uh, we decided to go to this this gallery and just look at the the architecture. The French just do everything better. Just amazing. It's a turn-of-the-century train station. That's how they made their train stations. Isn't that nice? Um, And just, it's filled with just these exquisite uh, pieces of art. There's an entire exhibit dedicated to Impressionism, and so you have all these different Impressionists who lived in Paris during the 1920s and 30s, whose work is on display, and my wife and I just delighted that day. It's one of our best days that we had in Paris, just walking through and spending time in front of each of the works of art. I would propose to you this evening that Ephesians chapter one is like an art gallery in which Paul is walking us through a hallway and pointing to the most beautiful works God has ever done in the life of the believer. He's like, hey, hey, stop in front of this one. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing. Just go ahead and stand in front of that one for a while and meditate on it. He's like, hey, over here, you're blameless and holy. Wow, just take that in. He's like, oh, this, you gotta see this one. Um, you, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. What an amazing sculpture he's made with you. Just incredible stuff. One, one commentary said this about Ephesians chapter one. While most English translations do not show it, the Greek text of 1, 3 through 12 is one unusually long sentence presenting one cascading description of God's work in Christ after another what we have in Ephesians chapter one is not a theological mind at its height, but rather a captured heart. How many of you have ever had like a, a spiritual high at like a youth camp? Or you've, had, you've gone to a retreat and it was just like amazing and you're like, I will never be the same. And it's just incredible. And then eventually that high sort of wears off. Well, here's what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter one. That wasn't meant to be a high. It was meant to be cultivated for all of life, even through life's ups and downs. And this is Paul's message to the Ephesians. Consider daily who you are because of Christ. Christ. Ephesus was an incredibly important city at the time. It would have had the cultural impact of like a New York or a San Francisco. Here's some photos of it. Just an, inc- I mean, who doesn't want to live in Ephesus? Just amazing. Does anybody watch Dur- the Durrells in Corfu? Have you ever seen that show on OPB? Okay. My wife and I, we're like 80 years old at heart. It's like one of our favorite shows. and uh, But that's what it looks like in, in the show. Um, so, so just this you can imagine, it's a port city. It comes with all of the things that a port city would come with. Incredible commerce, wealthy people, people trading goods and services. Um, It it also has this incredible influence, next slide, of uh, just Roman architecture, that was one of the amphitheaters there, so you can just tell incredible care went into uh, making this place uh, look like Rome and feel like Rome, just a, a, a crown jewel of the empire. Um, It was home to the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the popular gods in the Pantheon at that time. The temple was uh, so large and so secure that the Caesars kept their wealth in that temple, like their own personal Swiss bank accounts. So they don't even keep it in Rome. They're like, keep it in the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. Ephesus was also the place where Paul spent the most time church planting, about three years and if you, actually, you can read about it. If you, if you look at Acts 19 through 20, um, it tells the story of Paul's time in Ephesus. Two whole chapters dedicated to it, just some amazing stuff. When Paul arrives in Ephesus, um, there's some disciples, but they're not disciples of Jesus. It says they're disciples of John. And they're not, they haven't been very fruitful. There's only 12 of them. And so it says that Paul baptizes them into Christ. The Holy Spirit comes on them and they begin to prophesy and speak in tongues. And after three years of those disciples having their way in Ephesus and Paul being with them, Acts tells us all in Ephesus knew the gospel. How amazing is that? The name of of Jesus was so powerful that Jews in Ephesus began to go around and and they would just say the name of Jesus over demonized people and, and they got well. It says that the name of Jesus was held in high honor. Wouldn't that be amazing? In Newburgh, the name of Jesus is held in high honor. In the northwest of the name of Jesus, it's held in high honor there. Uh, In Acts 19, we get this insight. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. So punk rock. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now, I did a little calculation. The price of these scrolls would amount in today's dollars to be $8.5 million. So think about this. The gospel has so taken root in the city that people are making huge financial sacrifices for the sake of the truth. And the message of Jesus has sunk in so culturally that it begins to touch the bottom line economically for the, for the economy of Ephesus. At one point, there's a man um, who, who is like the head of the workers' guild. who they, they built these shrines to Artemis. And he starts this riot that results in thousands upon thousands of angry Ephesians chanting, Great is Artemis at Paul. See, the, the last quarter of his Artemis shrine sales, uh, they did, weren't doing so hot, and he found out that it was because of this message of the indwelling God who doesn't live in temples made by, built by human hands, but instead makes humans his temple, and that, this message has taken root in the people of Ephesus so that they weren't buying his shrines anymore. Just an image of a place completely captured by the presence of Jesus and so Paul writes this letter, and particularly this intro, to remind them of what has been done in them because of the good news of Jesus. So just a, a quick, like, highlight reel. Maybe snap a photo of this. He's like, you're blessed with every spiritual blessing. So how many spiritual blessings for those who are followers of Jesus do they lack? None. None. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing. You're chosen to be blameless and holy. You've been adopted as sons into the family of God. There's redemption through his blood. He's made, God has made known his plans to unite heaven and earth to you because he wants you in on it. You, you've obtained an inheritance coming into a new family. Oh, and by the way, you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit as evidence of what God intends to do. You can almost hear the excitement one scholar said it's difficult to know where Paul's thoughts stop because there's no punctuation. You can just imagine, he's just like, and this, and this, and this, right? Now I feel like you could spend hours just meditating on this passage and you could come up with so many new levels of insight and I really encourage you over this next week. Go and just read through this. It is an art gallery, it's amazing. But, but I specifically feel that God has placed uh, these three kind of aspects of his masterpiece on my heart for us this evening. So just like we would walk through an art gallery, I want to spend some time gazing and meditating on the work of Christ in your life personally. Look down at your Bibles, verse 3. He says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Verse four, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be what? Holy and blameless in his sight. Holy and blameless. When was the last time you woke up on a Saturday morning, you got to sleep in a little bit, stretched your arms, and you're like, oh, it feels so good to be holy and blameless. Wow. Why not? I think there's two reasons why. Because one, we have probably allowed our actions to define our spiritual status, and two, because it sounds sort of prideful, be like, oh, I'm holy and blameless, it's awesome. It's like, whoa, simmer down there. Uh, But for us to not agree with us being holy and blameless is to take our hearts and minds and make them out of step with the truth of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. There's these important phrases in both uh, verse three and verse four, he says this in verse three. It says, the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You'll see this phrase throughout the book of Ephesians. I think it's some 13 times he mentions this idea of being in Christ. And then in verse 4 he says this, for he chose us, what? In him For Paul, these are very specific categories uh, and to him it's very black and white. There are those who are outside of Christ who have not believed the gospel and have yet to place their life in his hands and they're separated by choice from the life and promises of Christ. But there's another category. There's, There's those who are in Christ who have wanted all of the benefits of Christ and surrendered their will to his, and because of that, they've been incorporated into the blessings of Christ. And for Paul, it's very important that you know where you're at, in Christ or outside of Christ. Because for those of you who uh, are in Christ, many of you in this room, it can be possible to allow your environment to teach your heart lack rather than the spiritual surplus you live with, and this is why he's writing See, God, God has des- decided that those who are in his son Jesus, who are in Christ, will be holy and blameless. And it says that he decided a long time ago. Like when, what, does it give us a time frame? It says this, for he chose us in him, oh, before the creation of the world to be holy. That was a long time ago. He's had this in his mind for a long time, that you would be holy and blameless. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be Holy. Well, it means two different things. If you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, write this down. Uh, Being being holy means two things. One, it means that you're set apart, that God has deemed you that you would be set apart from sinful ways of living, set apart from the world. But it also means that you're dedicated to. There's two aspects. You're set apart, but you also are dedicated to. What are you dedicated to? The kingdom way of life. Having your mind transformed. Transformed by constantly submitting it to Christ that he might shape and form you. So you're supposed to look different than the people around you. If you look just like the world around you, you have reason to question whether you have taken this truth fully into your heart. And then he says this, so you're, you're holy, but you're also supposed to be blameless, which is just such a strong stamp on the heart of every believer, that you can't be blamed. Isn't that so amazing? You're holy and you're blameless. It's so simple. God doesn't blame you. See, me- most of us, we're waking up, we're not like, this feels so good to be holy and blameless. It's like, I think, I think something's wrong. I think I could be blamed for something. I- I- am I good with you, God? I don't know. It's so amazing, it says in the scriptures, you're actually holy and blameless. Psalm 8411, I was just reading this the other day, it's amazing how it ties in with this scripture. It says this, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. So let me ask you this, does God withhold anything from those of you who are in Christ? No. Okay, let's try this again. Okay, Okay. I'm gonna go over here. Does God withhold any good thing from those whose walk who who are in Christ? No. no. Okay, now we're gonna try it over here because I think I can get these guys. So does God withhold any good thing from those who are in Christ? No, no. they did a little bit better, but you can work on it. We have a new filter for viewing ourselves. We're not sinners, we're saints. He made us holy and blameless and we need to allow this to sink deep down. See, I believe in the church that this blameless truth has yet to sink in for many. It says this in Romans 8, 1. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ. In another translation in the NIV, it says, there's no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. Whoa, where have we heard that before? In Christ. I would like to propose to you this evening that you are unpunishable. It's not possible for you to be punished because he made you blameless. Oh man, I can't wait for you guys to for this truth to sink in. I really can't. It's this is a deep thing. So we no longer need to worry about a punishment coming our way regardless of sin. If we could still be punished for our actions, then it would mean that our sin is stronger than the work of the cross. You are blameless. There is no possibility for you to be condemned. No matter what you've done in your life or what you will do in your life, there has been a sentence that has been handed down before the creation of the world that you should be holy and blameless. You cannot be punished. You are created to be righteous. But oftentimes we have allowed, as the church, our dislike for self-righteousness to outweigh our zeal for being righteous from him. And in doing so, we've come to value brokenness over holiness. Brokenness is not a virtue. Brokenness tells a half-truth about what it means to be in Christ. Brokenness tells the truth about your position before you came into Christ, but it can ignore your position of what it means to be in Christ now what if it is God's intention that you don't allow the sin, the pain, the difficulty to be the dominant filter through which you see yourself? See, many many have become comfortable with brokenness because they feel like it's their opportunity to be authentic. But a value for brokenness inevitably leads the back door open for some level of sin to become normalized in someone's life. And you were not designed for that. There is not beauty in brokenness, there's beauty in what God did with our brokenness. It's not to say that that you don't come to him broken, but it is to say that once you're in Christ, he actually does a pretty amazing job, and complete job, of total total and complete life transformation. And that's where the aim of our lives has to be. See, uh, uh, there's this truth in the kingdom that what got you into the kingdom keeps you into the kingdom. And what, and, and what I mean by that is what got you into the kingdom was a confession and what keeps you in the kingdom is a confession. So before, follow, track with me for a second, before you were in Christ, a confession of your position would have been that you were dead in sin. And anybody who's in Christ, you had this moment in your life, God, I'm dead in my sin, I'm at, there's enmity between you and me, and I need you to rescue me. There's nothing that I can do. And there's just this level of humility that you have cultivated in my heart, God, I need you. And that gets you into the kingdom. He's like, come on in. It says that there is an entire party happening in heaven with the angels when one person makes that confession. Beautiful confession. So then when you come into Christ, what is the confession of your position now? Is it, God, I'm a sinner, and, and I just need your grace, and I'm so sorry. Well, is it the same confession that you had before? No, the confession has changed because your position has changed. You're no longer in the same position. You're now blameless, holy, redeemed, and a saint. So get this, confession of sin isn't complete for a believer until there's a confession of holiness and righteousness, you can confess your sin all you want as a believer, but there must be at the same time an equal confession to this is what he's done in my life and how he's redeemed me and made me righteous and holy. See, there's, see, I can just tell there's so many of us in this room that we're so used to defining ourselves by our own actions that it's hard for us to fully take in this truth. We feel like there's still something that we should be doing, but Christ is like, don't we sing it? Jesus paid it all. Either he paid it all or he didn't. You are not a sinner with good moments. That that theology must die. You are not a sinner with good moments. You are in Christ. You are a saint who is being perfected through believing the truth until it affects all of your motivations. He made you to be blameless and holy and he will have his way. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse five says this. In him, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. What does that mean? He was excited about it. He was happy about it. Verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. You know, the uh, overuse of a word can cause us to forget the unbelievable power of a meaning. But God has just been pressing into my heart uh, this truth of redemption this week. Uh, Jake and I, we like to write uh, songs together. And just the songs we're even writing, they're all about redemption. You made a purchase. You bought us, Lord. We are yours. Just redemption, redemption, redemption. Now, what the heck is redemption? Because you've probably heard it like a million times. What is redemption? Well, believe it or not, I used to work at Bullwinkle's. And uh, <laughs> it's an incredible time. I was a go-kart guy. I was out there on the track rescuing people. And uh, what is if you don't know what Bullwinkles is, you need to take a trip over to the Family Fun Center in Wilsonville on, uh, on I-5. It's like South Wilson- Wilsonville exit. Um, I spent a full year of my life repairing go-karts on the track, fixing ticket machines, serving disgusting hamburgers, and uh, it it was an amazing time, but as you guys know, any um, family fun center uh, has a ticket counter, right? And at the ticket counter, there's a bunch of prizes behind it, and you can take your hard-earned money, and you can just blow it, uh, playing games, and if you do really well at those games, guess what? You get tickets, right? Right? kids love this stuff. It's like, I, I, got, I gave away real money, and I got this paper. And it's just amazing. And how many of you guys, you keep that paper in your sock drawer, you have had it at home? Man, I had like stacks of, of tickets in my, I'm just saving it up. I'm like, oh man, I'm going to get that like, you know, super soaker or whatever. So here's the way that it works. You go, you, you, you play these games, you get these tickets, and these tickets, they afford you something. So you go to the counter, and it's got all the prizes up up behind the counter or all the cheap ones in the counter, and you can take your tickets to redeem a prize. That's redemption. You're 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 paying the cost so that you can get something more valuable than the tickets that are in your hands. The, The word redemption is essentially a fiscal term. And what it means is that there was a debt caused by our sin, and God made a payment with his blood to redeem us from that debt. So so what does it mean to be redeemed? Well, it means that sin held you behind the counter. And God shows up to the counter, and, and Satan, he's at the counter. And he's like, oh, no, no, listen, that blood's worth a lot. I'm not sure you want this one. And Jesus is like, that's exactly who I want. Here it is. And he redeemed us, and he made a payment so that we could be his. That's redemption. He purchased us. And notice this line in verse 7. I love this line. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Now notice this, he didn't make this payment with his blood. He didn't go to the cross with our lack in mind. He went to the cross knowing the surplus in heaven. There was, he, he made a payment according to the riches of heaven, not according to what we needed. So he, what, what does that mean? What does it mean? Well, what it means is that he didn't redeem us to bring us back to normal life like the payment of his blood just depleted heaven's bank account, and we walked away from the prize counter with him kind of limping and saying, you better behave now. You have no idea how much that cost me. No. It was all done in accordance with the riches of heaven. He intends that the victory that he experienced is what we experience on a daily basis, nothing less. Matthew uh, 28 Verse 18 through 19 says this. This is right after Jesus comes back to life from the dead. He's standing before his disciples and he says this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. What does that mean? I redeemed you, not that you would live just a mundane life, being tossed back and forth by the waves of popular opinion and difficulty. I made you to live victorious. The authority that I just gained on the cross I now give to you so that you can have that same authority. Now now think about this for a second. Why did he have to go and get authority on the cross? Because we gave it away. In Genesis chapter three, humanity gives their authority away to the enemy by believing his lies and Jesus goes gets the authority back from the enemy and he gives it to us through his resurrection and he says, have fun. Go start the church. Tell everybody, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, if that's not a leadership strategy, I don't know what is. He's like, hey, you totally made a huge mess that lasted for a thousand years before with that authority. I'm about to give it to you again. Here you go. (laughs) You're like, wow, Jesus is so okay with mess, and I think that we should be too. He shares the wealth of his victory that we might, of our own volition, choose to respond to his redemption and walk in victory. Lastly, uh, look down at verse 13. this, This is just another thing I wanna take a look at tonight. He says this, and you also were included in Christ. Where have we heard that before? Holy cow. You were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him, where have we heard that before? With a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's possible to play favorites with the truth that we've been talking about this evening, but, but this is one of my favorites. This metaphor that Paul uses to describe salvation is so good, he's like, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, Now, a a seal has two different purposes. The first purpose of a seal is to authenticate and indicate ownership. The original purpose was to authenticate a document. There would be, you know, you've seen them like drip wax onto the envelope and they take something like this and they stamp their seal into it. And what they're saying is, I approve of what's inside this package, what's inside this letter. This, This is an authentic document. Um, It was a way of guaranteeing that this is genuine. Many companies will do this. um, They'll put their sticker on something and say, you know, this is an authentic, you know, whatever it is. And and that stamp of approval is like a a modern-day seal. We approve that this is not a counterfeit. It's amazing. How many people, like, counterfeit, uh, like, like, uh, dish scrubbers? Nobody's counterfeiting dish scrubbers because they're not really worth anything. Anybody can have a dish scrubber. But what are people counterfeiting? Things that are, really, that are worth a lot. Just because we see counterfeit believers out there, or we see people who are uh, counterfeiting the truths of God, what it shows us is that they wouldn't, you, you don't counterfeit something that's, that isn't valuable. There must be something real that we should be longing for and, and hungering for. And, and what the scripture is telling us is that Jesus, he, he gave us a Holy Spirit to act as a seal so that when people look at us and they see the Holy Spirit on us, they say, oh, they must belong to him. But a seal not only exists to authenticate something, it also exists to close and protect contents uh, I, I, you know, we live in this incredible wine region. My wife and I love wine. And I got a bottle of wine the other day that was, it had a cork in it and it had a wax seal over it. And the cork and the wax seal existed to protect the precious liquid on the inside of the bottle from oxygen. Uh, I I know this is going to shock many of you in the room. When you open a bottle of wine, it's really only good for like one day or maybe two days. Do not drink it after that. Because the oxygen comes in and it actually spoils the liquid inside the bottle of wine. It wasn't meant to be exposed to oxygen for an extended period of time, even if you put the cork back in it, I promise you. Um, And so what this is saying What it's saying is that the Holy Spirit is like a seal that preserves the mind of Christ and the heart of the kingdom. When you don't give yourself to the Spirit, you're removing the seal and exposing the precious thing that the Lord has done in your heart to oxidation, to be spoiled and ruined. We need to give the Holy Spirit his due. We need to give ourselves fully over to him. Now, Paul says this in verse 14. Look down at your Bibles. He says, the the promised Holy Spirit who is a what? A deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So, so think about this. Not only is the Holy Spirit a seal to authenticate God's ownership of us, not only is it a seal to protect what the Lord has done in our lives, the more we give ourselves over to the Holy Spirit, the, the more we protect the words that the Lord has spoken into our hearts, but also, the Holy Spirit acts as a down payment, reminding us of our future inheritance. So the, the, the Lord has promised in the scriptures that he one day will unite heaven and earth completely. And the Holy Spirit acts as a reminder for us of what he intends to do. So, so you know, we just, we just did this. We just prayed for people to get healed. Did we do that because it would be cool for people to get healed in our church? No. We did that because Jesus purchased healing on the cross for us, for one. And two, any manifestation of the Holy Spirit acts as a signpost pointing to the greater reality, which is when he comes and makes things as they should be. There are little tastes of heaven here on earth pulling us into God's reality. So what is the Holy Spirit? It's like getting a down payment. It's like getting a deposit. There's more where this came from. The manifestation of the Holy Spirit's fruit in our lives is evidence to who we belong to. He protects the mind of Christ and he reminds us that the best is yet to come when you are in Christ. So talk about just amazing truths, just pausing through the gallery and looking at these different things, that God, these truths that God has done in our lives. Now, I can like, see it on your faces. I'm not gonna like pull any punches, church. I see it on your faces right now. The problem is, is that we, we know this is like true, but you're like, bro, I just don't feel it. <laughs> and I can't make you feel it. So what does this mean for us? I, I, I want to attempt tonight to ask the Holy Spirit to take these truths and sink them deep into our souls to take these truths so that every day we would think differently about ourselves because of what he's accomplished for us. So I just wanna highlight one implication from this message for us this evening, and it's this past tense, identity. I'm really not sure I can think of a better passage for the subject of identity. You know, it's one of our deepest values here at the church that God didn't give us a law, but a new identity in the Holy Spirit so that our motivations would be changed from the inside rather than controlled from the outside. One of the amazing realities of what Paul is saying uh, doesn't come from what's explicit in the text, but what's implicit, and that is this. All of these identity statements in Ephesians chapter 1 are past tense. Why? Why? because they're already true of you. There's nothing that you have to do in order to earn these statements. See, God's words are never spoken to us without power and life being on them. We learn this all the way back in Genesis. When God speaks, what happens? A world leaps into being. And I would propose to you that every time God speaks, there's a new reality that he's speaking into our lives that we have the opportunity to live into as well. And that's what he's doing in this text. Also, I believe that when God speaks, that any word that he speaks comes with the ability for that word to come to full fruition in your life. I spoke on this a couple weeks ago, but we're we're reminded in the story of Mary when the angel comes to her. the, The angel says, no word of God will ever be void. In another translation, it says, with God, nothing is impossible. How do you reconcile those two things? What it means is there will never be a word spoken from God that doesn't carry with it the ability to bring that word to fruition in your life. So what he's doing here is he's speaking who we are before we've fully lived into it. Why? Because he he is prophetically inviting us to use our own volition to live every day into our destiny. What's at stake tonight isn't like a message you're like, oh, that was an interesting message. No, what's at stake is your destiny. Will you believe and live into it? I got married when I was 22 to Emily, this beautiful woman right here. I was 24? Oh. Okay, I got that backwards. I was 24, she was 22. Okay. <laughs> what was I doing at 22? I was, I was playing video games at 22. That's probably what I was doing. Um, I got married at 24, and when I got married, did I know what it meant to be a husband? No. Did I know how to be a husband? No. Did I know what husbands do? No. Was I a husband? Yes. (laughs) It's like that. I was called a husband before I knew how to be a husband because I would spend the rest of my life living into my destiny. Why do we have these statements in Ephesians that you guys, I know you're finding hard to believe because God is going like this. I'm trying to get a hold of you, to pull you into your destiny. If you've just believed this, I'm not looking for talent. I'm not looking for charisma. I'm looking for faith. Do you believe that what I've done for you is actually true? Seriously, I got to like shake you guys. Like, do you believe it? Do you believe this? We're going to be a church who believes this. See, he speaks these words over us so that we don't develop a theology around our present lack, but instead we de- develop our theology around what's true. It says, can we like say amen to that? Because that's, that's, that's a good word. Like, here's, here, like if you came to church to get okay news, it would be this. Hey guys, just hang in there. God will be with you, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> You will never get that here. If you want that, you got to go to a different church. I'm sorry. What you will get here is you will get another voice grabbing a hold of you and pulling you into your destiny because we want God to get what he paid for on the cross. If we don't give him what he paid for, if we're going to clap, let's just, let's clap. If we're going to clap, then clap. If, If we don't give him what he paid for, we are saying the cross didn't matter. And the cross matters. I'm just, I'm so hit with this week, guys. There are so many half Gospels out there. There's so many half Gospels out there. I don't know about you, but I am sick of it. The truth of the Gospel is this. You were alienated before Christ when you were not in him. Guess what? You were enemies with God. The bad news of the Gospel is what makes the good news so good. He was like, oh my gosh. They hate me. They're, they're doing everything against me. They're killing my followers. I've got to die for them. I've got to die for them. That's the truth. Many have thought that their ability to behave holy in some way qualifies for them for the title of holy, but this isn't what we see in the scriptures. We see that there was a work in the past that changed our present and our future. And this shows us his goodness personally on full display because he gives us an identity that isn't gonna crush us or crush others. See, oftentimes, we take on identities that crush others because our identity is based on comparison. See, in- insecurity always manifests in the need to compete. Insecurity achieves an identity for us by keeping a running a tally of points for who's winning. Have you ever known somebody like that before? Don't, don't make any, don't point. Um, the person's lack begins to rub off on those around them and you can feel it. You, you probably don't love hanging out with that person very much. I, I just honestly believe that in our church, the Lord wants to completely eradicate the false belief that in order to be blessed, it means somebody else can't be blessed. What does it say? Praise be to the God and Father of Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. There is no lack in heaven, and there is no lack for what he offers to you on earth. Sometimes we get these identities, it like crushes the people around us because we're competing. Sometimes we get identities, we put identities on ourselves that crush us. Have you ever had that? Your value and your worth is in your ability, and so you constantly feel the need to earn whatever identity you've accomplished for yourself in the past so that you can keep it going. And eventually you become a slave to your identity. The pressure's on. This is exactly what Paul is preaching against. With Christ, the pressure's off. It's past tense. He already accomplished it. If these things are true in the past because Jesus accomplished them without your help, then guess what? Your value, your worth is already settled. And so then what you give off to the people around, us, around you is the message that anyone can have this sense of security. Anyone can be blessed. Anyone can be chosen. Anyone can be purchased. And anyone can be sealed with the Holy Spirit man, that's good. Here's what I'm trying to help you do. This is a metaphor. If it bombs, it's okay. What I'm trying to help you do is a little spiritual algebra every day so that when Monday comes, you're able to calculate what the lived experience of a believer in truth actually is in the face of every situation. When you get the accusation or while you're driving home from work, you hear that lie that you've you've believed so many times before or you hear the rumor or, or, or you get the phone call with the bad news or your friend betrays you, guess what you now have? You have a new filter, your Ephesians 1 filter. You pull it out and you go like this. You go, wait, hang on a second. I've been redeemed by his blood. So, okay. I I have lost the right to view myself outside of the blood of Jesus. I've lost the right to view myself outside of his victory. I will be victorious in this situation. So I'm going to do some quick spiritual algebra so that I can line my heart up with the truth. You go, wait, hang on a second. It says that I'm blessed with every spiritual blessing, okay? It doesn't feel like that, but the scriptures say I'm not powerless, I'm not a victim, I'm not at the mercy of those with earthly power. In this situation, I cannot view myself as a victim, so here's the algebra. It's not lack plus me equals despair. No, that equation was done away with. It's this one. He wanted me, he blessed me, and now I walk in victory, no matter what. It's like, well, I've actually been chosen to be holy and blameless, Wow, have you ever wondered what God's will is for your life? Try, have, you, have you ever wondered that? You're like, what am I supposed to do with my life? It's like this. You're just supposed to be holy and blameless. That's his will for your life. So when the condemnation comes, it's easy for me to go, wait, hang on, Romans 8, 1, I can't be condemned. Whoa, Ephesians 1, I've been, i am chosen to be holy and blameless, blessed with every spiritual blessing, sealed with the Holy Spirit. Whoa, no, i got to do a little calculation here. I'm actually not, uh, I'm not, there's no uh, lack, there's no deficit, there's a surplus in my life. This is what getting a renewed mind looks like practically, and it's work. It says this in Ephesians chapter four, verse 20. You were taught to throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. You think Paul's beating the same drum See, here's the deal. You can throw off your old sinful nature because it's not your essence. Your essence is a new one that's shining through by the meditation of your mind on the truth. What does it say? Renewing your thoughts and your attitudes through the Holy Spirit. So uh, I want to end with a story to get really practical. Maybe this will help you out a little bit. My wife and I, um, we've been remodeling our house for the past like four months or so. And um, it's taken a long time because we had to do a a bathroom and a kitchen and both of those. It was the the hardest rooms to remodel. And uh, in the kitchen, we... um, we had originally found that there was this leak that had caused all this dry rot. It was just really nasty stuff. We had to take all the cabinetry out. We thought we were going to be able to save it. We, we weren't able to. We pulled the entire floor out, had to put new plumbing, electrical, new subfloor down, like the whole thing. Uh, the room was just incomplete. Just, it was a rectangle for, for a long time. A rectangle with a hole in it. It was dangerous. For a long time. And uh, so, you know, I, we're planting this church, and, and it's a lot of work to plant a church. It's also a lot of work to remodel a house. We're, like, out of money. We're, like, we don't have any money, so we're just doing it ourselves. It's like YouTube videos and Andrew Fleming, my buddy, uh, are the ones who are, like, doing, we're, like, rebuilding this house. And uh, so we have spent, like, all of our money, all of our time, all of our energy. I am, like, at my wit's end right now. I'm, like, I just want to move in. I just want a home. And uh, so we, we, get that, we, get, we got, got our kitchen basically done this last week. Just amazing, like, got, okay, wow. Oh, this is gonna go even better than I had thought. Okay, so we get this this kitchen done, and we, I, you know, one of the things that we did was we put down this checkerboard floor. It's an old 40s house, so we thought, oh, we gotta do the checkerboard kitchen floor. It's a period. So we, <laughs> so you're gonna learn something about me, I'm very particular about aesthetics. So I, I get the, I I put this floor in. It takes me like 13 hours to put this floor in. It's like, what? There's just these pieces of linoleum. I just stick them on the ground and roll them with a 100 pound roller. How hard is that? But here's the deal. Every time you stick them on the glue that you just put on the ground, it's like industrial grade glue. You roll the roller over it and glue just squirts up all over the place. The first time it happened I was freaking out. I'm like, "Uh, this is gonna be a sticky floor forever. We're always gonna have a sticky kitchen floor. If you know me, I'm like, I can't even have like a crumb on my floor. So let alone a sticky Floor. oh so I am I'm like I'm like rolling the roller over it's a hundred pounds so I'm like picking this thing up throwing my back out and I'm like taking the paper towels and trying to wipe the glue off it's oh, so miserable so for 13 hours I, I put this floor in it looks great it really does it looks really good and uh, so anyway, we got, we got a, the, one of the last things that we had to do is we had to put a dishwasher in. So we got our dishwasher, we put our dishwasher in. And when we put it in, uh, my buddy Andrew, he, he connects the electrical and he's like, hey, your dishwasher's working, man. Look here, you just push these buttons and, it, and it, it's gonna be awesome. I'm like, oh, it's so amazing. Like, we're about to move in. So that was on Monday this last week. Uh, we get it in and I, I pushed a button and I didn't like, I, I, didn't, I, I don't really know what I pushed. I don't don't know this dishwasher. It's it's new to me. And I thought I shut the door all the way. So it ran a cycle. Anyway, on Wednesday, I come to the house. Our kitchen is completely flooded. Just, yeah, that's how I felt. I mean, I was literally in worship. I was weeping. The Lord's like, you haven't cried about it. You need to cry about it. I was like, oh, my gosh. Oh, I'm like, oh, I'm like trying to hold it together. I'm like, oh, it's okay. Oh, I'm gonna be all right. Man, it man, it destroyed me. So I, I text Emily. I'm like, we're gonna have to like take the whole floor out. We are have to take the subfloor out. Do this all over again. And uh, you know, about gosh, this is like, well, a little bit, it was a little bit over a year ago. We had this crazy season where like. We had like three cars break down, basically. Like we got like a car broke down and our other car broke down and, and then we like we, we bought a car and when we, the night we bought it, it like overheated. It's like this crazy thing and, and we lost to us a substantial amount of money. And I'll never forget in that time period, the Lord, he just kept, was instilling this truth in my heart that, I'm gonna go over time, I'm sorry guys. He was just instilling this truth in my heart that I have the ability to give him a gift in this life that I'll never have the ability to give him in the next. And he said to me, he said, You in heaven you will never question whether you should praise. And there are things that you will go through on this earth that will make you question whether you should worship. And when you, in the midst of that difficulty, choose to worship, what you've done is you've just given him a sacrifice of praise and it's something you'll never have that opportunity again. And so I remember... Gosh, oof. Oh. <sighs> so I, I remember it was it was a really big deal for us. I mean, I know people have like lost, you know, sp- you know, family members to death, and, and there's bigger deals than this. But to me, it was a very big deal. I remember I was driving, and there's this Jeremy Riddle song that came out. It's like called "All the More" or, some, or "More" or something like that. And it, it, basically, the chorus says, "Even if my heart may fail, even if you know all these things happen, I'll still praise you all the more." And I remember just saying that, like oh, gosh, I believe you're good beyond my circumstance. So I think that God, like we go through these trials, I don't think they're God's will for our life at all. I think it says in Psalm 8411 that he doesn't hold back good from us. That's his primary intention is to give us good. But I do think that that bad happens and every time we go through something difficult and we, and we choose to praise him in the midst of it, it's like we went to the spiritual gym and we took that difficulty and we lifted it up. And that tension that we felt actually strengthens us so that when we go through the next difficulty, you actually, your mind is already thinking in a different way than it was before. And so I remember, you know, just the, this, the whole floor thing happened. And uh, gosh, I can't tell you how many hours I spent there. I'm like calculating all the time and all the energy and all the money and at the same time I'm going, nope, this is still true. This is still the truth. This is still who I am. You still have intended to bless me with every spiritual blessing. I'm still set apart to be holy and blameless. I am designed to walk through difficulty and pain and not allow my circumstance to speak louder than the truth, Lord. I cannot let this touch my joy. And it wasn't, it's not easy. I mean, we had tough conversations. I, I, Jake came over and saw it. I mean, it was not, it's, not, it, it's not an easy thing right now. I still don't know what we're going to do. But, I, but here was my calculation in my mind at the time. Here's my spiritual algebra. My home doesn't define me. Bumpy floors in my kitchen don't define me. This right here, this home, is temporal blessing. I'm caught up in a larger meta-narrative than a house remodel that says that God has shared secrets about his purpose and will with me so that I could join him in speaking the truth of life over Newberg. So I'm not left To think of myself out of pain, I've been given a comforter who reminds me of the ownership over my life. He is with me. I am with him. And who is able to bring power in any circumstance. So let's let's get kingdom, Alex. Stop dividing sacred and secular things. Strengthen yourself in the Lord and pray over your kitchen. (laughs) I'm like, in Jesus' name, no bumpy floors. (laughs) I'm like, in Jesus' name, no water damage. You can pray that with me. I'd appreciate it. What it does is it moves me in that moment from victim to victor, which is what he has intended to do in the life of anyone who is in Christ. Believing the truth about who we are does not always immediately change the circumstances, but it changes the way I think about the solutions. Jesus, he teaches us this. You, can, you only have authority over the storm that you can sleep in. And so that's our aim. I want us to be a heavenly-minded church while living in the midst of earth. Let's stand together. Jesus is longing for a church who will start holding the truth over our difficulties no matter what they may be. So I, I want you right now to bring to mind whatever difficulty it is that you're going through. Just even right now, we can grab the lights. We're gonna go into a time of worship in a moment, but I just want you, don't read up what's up on the screen. Close your eyes. All right, everybody close your eyes. I want you to, to, to bring to mind whatever difficulty it is that you're going through right now. Whatever, it could even be like an impossibility. or like, this isn't a difficulty. It's impossible. And because of the truth that we just read with that thing in mind, I want you to put your hand over your heart and I want you to declare this over yourself altogether. I have been purchased by Jesus to be his and completely pure and holy. I am blessed with every spiritual blessing. I no longer need to wonder if I am loved or if I have been given the power to see heaven come to earth. I know that I am in Christ because I have the Holy Spirit as a reminder. There is no situation I will face where his intentions for me are not victory. I won't be afraid to proclaim the whole gospel with my life, and I will remember what his love has afforded me all of my life.